0: this week on the back table podcast
1: a key point for especially for chronic rhinitis treatment is a good sphenopalatine injection and that's especially important for the cryotherapy because the one pitfall in in this procedure is the ice cream headache and and i've had a couple of them and they they can be pretty bad and and so you really want to try to head that off so a good way to prevent that ice cream headache is to make sure you get a good sphenopalatine injection. We talked about that reinforced anesthesia needle. That's a key tool to provide a good sphenopalatine block. And so the one little modification for cryotherapy is I will, I will provide that block before I do the procedure. And then as soon as I get that cryo wand out of the nose, I'll apply a little bit more of the local in that area. And that, that seems to blunt the ice cream headache quite nicely.
2: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Backtable ENT podcast. And here we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in otolaryngology with the hope that you can take this information and apply it to your own practice. I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist practicing in an academic setting in Dallas, Texas.
0: And I'm Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at Children's Medical Center in Dallas. We're your hosts, and we're so glad that you stopped by to check out our podcast today. We've got a great show today. How are you feeling, Gopi? I'm feeling actually very fortunate because we have a guest, Dr. Scott Fortune, on our show today. Nice. <laughs> but That's it's right. But I do feel fortunate. <laughs> hey, he,
2: he was born in Kentucky and raised in Tennessee. He went to medical school and residency at Vanderbilt. And in 1999, he joined Allergy and ENT Associates, a private practice in Nashville, and is still with this group today. He is board certified by the American Board of Otolaryngology and is a fellow of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. He is a center of excellence trainer for Stryker ENT, and he has hosted peer-to-peer training sessions for visiting physicians to teach them the latest techniques of minimally invasive office-based science procedures. Today, he's going to talk to us about office-based rhinology. Welcome to the show, Scott. Welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Longtime fan, and I've finally made my way onto the stage. <laughs> really thrilled to join you guys today and, and talk about one of my passions.
0: Well, thank you for all the support you've given us. We truly appreciate it, and for uh, giving us the chance to have you on today. Uh, we'd love for you to first just tell us about yourself and tell us about your practice.
1: So, as you mentioned, uh, born in a small town in in uh, Kentucky near the Tennessee border, and then I was raised in East Tennessee in Knoxville. I had the opportunity to go away to college in Atlanta, and then found myself in Nashville and arrived here in 1989, and I've never left. And uh, I've been one of the uh, great decisions. Although I've spent a lot of time in the Southeast and, and I finally realized that I needed to broaden my horizons a little bit. And and along with performing one of these DNA tests that we all do nowadays, I found my roots in Ireland and, and England and discovered another passion, which is travel. And, and we usually enjoy taking trips there to, to find out where we came from. So in my off uh-huh. time, I enjoy travel and, and historical fiction, especially as it relates to the UK or Ireland.
2: That's great. Yeah. Uh, Very nice. That's fun. So you're, you're talking us to us today about office-based rhinology. Tell us, you know, what does that mean? What what does that entail? And you know, how did you find yourself specializing in this?
1: Well, I'm going to go back to the beginning a little bit. So in my training, Vanderbilt was known as a strong program in laryngology and and head and neck surgery, and we had a, a single rhinologist and we had three residents a year, and that meant that that sometimes. Residents didn't all get the same experience. And and I was a little bit on the short end of rhinology. I'll take responsibility for my uh, part in that. But when I entered training, that that was not a great skill. And by the way, when I finished training, many of us barely had cell phones. We were still completely on paper. So I have, I've seen a lot of change in, in healthcare in my day and um we have over these years from 1999 to now become digital we're one practice in two locations we have three advanced uh, practice providers we've got four audiologists five otolaryngologists the numbers make my head spin but the the journey to being uh, an office based rhinologist started about five or six years into, into my career i had done some sinus surgery and i'd just gotten my allergy fellowship certification and I found myself in the OR one day doing what I thought was a routine endoscopic sinus case and had the dreaded complication of a cerebral spinal fluid leak. And you might imagine the impact that has on a young practitioner. And it had a, an outsized impact on me. I became a very timid sinus surgeon. And, and really, I quit doing any sinus procedures other than anything really straightforward, maybe a septoplasty, some terminate reductions, barely did any maxillary cases. So. Fast forward a few years to around 2010 and my partner, Dr. Lee Bryan, who's also a trainer, wanted to begin an office surgery program. And he began with some turbinate reductions in the office. And this evolved over a couple of years until one day he came to me in 2014 and said, "I, I need you to partner with me to take this to the next level. I have some ideas of what I want to do with this, but I'm going to need someone to help me cover the cost of this equipment. This equipment's expensive and I need more of it to do what I want to do. And I, I need you to get on board. And I very quickly realized that I needed some education. I needed to add some skills. My skill set was not where I wanted it to be to, to partner with him to provide this service. And so I, one of the great lessons. And one of the take-home points for me from, from our talk today is that your education doesn't end when you walk out the door of your residency. In fact, in many ways, it's just beginning. And so I learned that in 2014 in, in droves. And so I found myself at the Western States Rhinology course. I was at the academy in and, and every training booth I could, I could get into. I went to area labs, any company that was offering some kind of training, you know, I availed myself of that. And it took a couple of years but eventually i got i got to the point where i i could do these things and and i felt comfortable with it and that's sort of when it really began for me and it 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 all has to do with a patient providing an experience that's patient-centered and one of the main benefits if you will of office-based rhinology is minimum downtime compared to the recovery from an operating room case the the things we do in the office take a day two three at the at the most to recover from we'll often do these on friday and send the patient back to work on monday we'll do them on friday and let them use their cpap again sunday or monday night so these are some important things about about rhinology so it really was a sort of a fortuitous thing i, I was at a point in my career i wasn't burned out but but i was at a point in a lot of us reach where nothing was new i was doing the same old things i'd done since since the day i left Vanderbilt and. And then all of a sudden, all these things dropped into my lap at once. Terminate reductions, little septoplasties, uh, polypectomies, biopsies, epistaxis. And the list goes on and on and we will cover the list. But it was, it was a breath of fresh air. It was a, I call it a career renaissance. It came at just the right time when I, I needed, I needed a boost. And when we'll all find ourselves in that place and, and hopefully something comes along for each one of you that, that came along for me and, and that really improve my, I practice satisfaction, it makes my days easier. It makes the, the hassles we all deal with, um, administrative or insurance or whatever. It it makes those all much more tolerable. Um, Our administrator remarked that, that the physician's mood, you know, was significantly different once we started offering this. there's so many benefits of it. And, and like I said, if you just, if you just place the patient at the center of that, everything will, will fall into place for, for you. So that's a long answer, but that's an important part (laughs) of the story.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. No, I think it's wonderful. I love that it was a career renaissance. I mean, how amazing is that? So what procedures do you offer in the office that you've, you know, historically have done in the OR? What, what When the patient comes to you or if anybody comes and say, hey, what kind of in practice, in office procedures are y'all doing for rhinology? What, what, What is the list? So
1: I think what most of us consider, you know, Operating room rhinology is septoplasty, terminate reductions, endoscopic sinus surgery. I think that's a pretty standard list, but if if you want to talk about office-based rhinology, a, a good way to think about this is to break it down into what we call the four disease states. And so those are chronic rhinosinusitis, chronic rhinitis, lateral wall or nasal valve insufficiency, and eustachian tube dysfunction. And then I'll, I'll throw in a couple of bonuses and, and you could lump them under one of these other categories if you like, but but two other ones are nosebleeds and, and then minor neoplasms. And we'll we'll go through those in just a moment. My answer to this question would have been a lot different before the pandemic than it is after the pandemic. And so we all know what's happened with that. There's there's now need for PPE air scrubbers. There's got to be room downtime. You got to do terminal sanitization. You got to have air exchanges. The list goes on and on. And the, these things add time and costs to everything that we're doing. So before the pandemic, the procedures we offered to our patients included limited septoplasties, inferior turbinate submucous resection, of course balloon sinus dilation is a primary procedure that most will offer in, a, in an office rhinology program. We did some limited endoscopic sinus surgery, some anterior ethmoidectomy, occasional sphenoidotomy. Most of our frontal sinus stuff had to do with balloon uh, dilation. But we also did some polypectomies. We started to treat epistaxis. We ended up getting an image guided system to allow us to do a little more complex procedures. And then we did some simple biopsies. We started doing eustachian tube dilation. Then over the course of a couple of years, we added the polymer implants for lateral wall insufficiency. Then the cryoablation unit and then the radio frequency devices came along. And after a while, we had some cases that that were what I call multi-agenda. There were a lot of things on the list. So a patient could have a septoplasty, terminates, a cryo, You know, you, you could add several things there. The important thing to know about that is if you've got a lot on your agenda, it takes a lot of time. So that's a good segue into what are we doing now that the pandemic has fallen upon us and we've had to change our ways pretty significantly. And, and um, it's basically what we've eliminated is septoplasty and any procedure that's going to take over 30 to 40 minutes. So all those multi-agenda cases are, are now done back in the OR. The reason for the 30 to 40 minute window is it takes time to clean the room and for the, for the air scrubbers to, to have time to recirculate the, the air. And there's lots of data out there. I, I know this is kind of a nuts and bolts talk, but, and even though we're private practitioners, we read the literature too, and then nice. um, we follow best practices and there there's, there's a lot out there from. Stanford and Harvard and the other groups studying this, and and you can go to that literature and find out how to clean the air in your procedure room and how and calculate how long it takes for that air to turn around. And for us, for a procedure room of our size, the, the air exchange between the HVAC system and the HEPA filtration system that we installed takes about 18 minutes. So, if your procedure takes 30 minutes, it takes the those nursing staff about 15 minutes to clean. And then you got about 18 minutes to let that air clean. So that's that's pretty much your hour. So that has, it's had a significant impact on what we do. It's brought some things back to the ambulatory surgery center or the main hospital operating room that we used to try to tackle in the office.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, as uh, when you're thinking about patients who come in and, you know, may have you know, any of these conditions that you you mentioned, how do you get a sense of whether a patient is going to be a good candidate for for an in-office procedure? Is Yeah, what, what does that look like?
1: So the, the, if you want to do office-based rhinology, you have to kind of go back to the beginning a little bit. And first of all, it, it requires a little bit of a change of mindset. You have to start looking for things that maybe you weren't looking for previously. And, and the great example of that is nasal valve. I could probably count on one hand the times that I recognized a, a nasal valve issue, you know, before we really started to focus on treating lateral wall insufficiency in our office. And, and so it, it took me getting into my head that before I walk in that patient's room, I've, I've got to at least be thinking about this as soon as I read the history. And a corollary to that is to, to help focus the physician, we got the nursing staff that to add symptom scores to every triage. So as soon as a patient complains about anything in their nose or their ear, out comes the symptom score. And we use a SNOT score. We use the nose score. We use the total nasal symptom scores. We use the ETDQ7. These are all clinically validated tools that are objective assessments of, of the patient's symptoms. And so, you know, the, the eye doesn't see what the mind doesn't know. And so if you aren't thinking about this before you walk in the room, then, then you'll miss it. And I had to change how I do my exam. I had to add a modified coddle maneuver uh, to every exam so that I didn't miss that lateral wall insufficiency. And that that's but one example. So you have to change your way of thinking. And then one other, you know, frame shift or or mindset change, if you will, is when you're, when you're evaluating a patient, maybe your first question becomes, can I do this procedure in my office? And then if, if not well, then you're going to have a different discussion with them than if the answer is yes. And so those are the first things to think about for, for evaluating a patient for an office procedure. Then I would say the next set of criteria is what we all know. They, they need to have maximum medical therapy. You know, the first thing you're going to do for a patient is not operating on them for, for whatever symptom they walk in with. You're going to want to make sure they've, they've, you know, tried whatever, your definition or or your peers' definition of maximum medical therapy is first. And then you also want to make sure their workup's complete. So if you're considering balloon dilation for sinuses, you definitely want to have some imaging on hand. You want to know if there's any complicated anatomy, any, anything you might anticipate during that procedure that can make things difficult. For the eustachian tube patient, you want to make sure that you've done a nasopharyngoscopy and you have some tympanometry and you have met all the criteria. Another thing to know, especially in IRA, and I'm sure it's true around other parts of the country is insurers have varying criteria that they use to determine whether a patient is approved for these procedures or not and and you have to get that in your head and and it's 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 nearly mind-boggling in Tennessee I can't keep it all in my head so I I have I have charts everywhere that tell me what the Signa criteria are and the Blue Cross criteria are and and United Healthcare seems to change all the time and and so it's just very yeah it's very difficult to keep up with all this so you need a you need a reference to that somewhere or you're going to you're going to be frustrated you're going to spend a lot of time not getting approval for what you want to do so that that's important to anticipate ahead of time now once you've got those things in mind i would say the next thing is what's the level of disease and and for most office based rhinology we're going to be treating mild to moderate disease you're not really going to be able to do too much for the patient who walks in your office and there are polyps peeking out the end of their nose. That's not an office-based procedure. That's still gonna be handled best in the operating room. I'll give you one example. That's maybe a little contrary to that in just a minute, but but generally we're gonna deal with mild to moderate disease. However that's defined, it can be based on the symptom scores, the patient's history. If you do, you know, CT scan grading, like a lund Mackay score, that's fine to use too. Polyp grades, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're going to be treating mild to moderate disease. So once we've settled on that and it looks like this patient is a good candidate for something in the office, I've got three pretty simple tests that we, that we put the patient through to determine if they're a good candidate. And the first is how, how do they handle having a a telescope in their nose? And, and we've all seen the patients that, you know, you come at them with a telescope and they're, they are immediately backing away from you or some fall out of the chair. And then those, those are not your office procedure candidates. Yep. Another, yeah, another, another good one is to ask them how they've done with invasive dental work. You know, if they can handle these deep cleanings and fillings and crowns and, and things that dentists do to people in their office, chances are they're going to be able to handle, you know, what you might put them through in your, your office-based rhinology procedure. And then the third one, and I, you know, sometimes this is the one that trips people up is you got to tell them, you know, when we're doing things in their nose, they're going to hear it. It pops and it crackles and and there's sounds of the devices inflating and so forth and and uh, sometimes that's the one where the patient's eyes are rolling back and you're like okay well we're going to be doing this one in the OR then so <laughs> um, so those are three simple tests you can use to to sort out on the front end who might be an office candidate or not. I will say it's, it's a pretty good set, but it's not, it's not foolproof. Some get through those three and, and I was going
0: to ask you, what percent do you feel like you have to yeah. abort? I haven't had
1: to abort too often. i have one, I have one flight attendant who needed balloon sinus dilation and, and eustachian tube dilation cause she was just miserable every time the plane took off and landed, you know, she's, her face was hurting and her ears were excruciating and, and, um, and she made it through all three of those tests, but the first time we did anything or no, she sat, sat straight up in the chair and vomited all over the uh, <laughs> procedure chair the and thing. we weren't quite ready for that. So things can happen. And yeah. and I mean, just a minute, when we get to anesthesia, I'm going to touch on this again, but, but one thing you've got to be ready for in an office-based procedure is what if things don't go just quite right? You got to be ready to handle that because things come up. You know, you'll have good anesthesia and yet, you know, the patient may, may, squirm a little bit and and you got to know how to handle that. So a good thing to keep in mind is the the awake patient is a completely different animal than the one in the operating room. You know, in the operating room, mm-hmm. everything's pretty much controlled. If it's not, you can you can ask your anesthesia colleagues to to fix that. But in the office, it it all falls to you to to troubleshoot that. So you need to anticipate that, you know, before you before you do any office procedures. And then uh, I would say the final thing to to know who's a good candidate. We touched on it a little bit before, but you need to know the criteria because they're, they're going to come times when you got to fight the fight. I've had it happen plenty of times that I met all of Blue Cross criteria and they still denied the procedure. And so if you really want this uh, for your patient, you've got to be an advocate.
0: Yeah.
1: You got to be willing to, to request a peer-to-peer or to take it to a higher level, whatever you need to. And so, so those are the things to, to run through before you offer the service and to to know who's a, a good candidate for the procedures you might and uh, consider.
0: What's the youngest age you would do? I mean, any adolescents or teenagers that y'all have done or is eighteen kind of the standard? I don't know the age range of what your of what the practice sees or what or what you see Doctor Fortune, but
1: so the first thing I would say is, you know, make sure you're you're aware of what your state regulations are. It, it may vary from state to state. This is true for age or anesthesia or any of these things. And in Tennessee, generally, eighteen is is a, a good number to hang your hat on. I will say that you know, so my partner a lot of times has you know late teenagers, eighteen and nineteen. My actually youngest patient was that flight attendant. She was twenty one. So okay. I've not had a lot of uh, teenagers that needed an office based procedure, number one, but, but number two, that age group, you know, it can, it can go either way. Some are, some are pretty tough. Some, you know, some just the talk of it, you know, you can tell by the look in their eyes that they're not going to be doing anything in your office other than talking to you. So, so it sort of depends on the patient, but I would say they need to be at least 18 or 19 before you consider it.
2: Well, let's, let's get into the anesthesia protocol, because I think, you know, when I've, that's the part that I think about the most and worry about the most when I do any sort of in-office procedure, the, the handful that I've done, I I feel like that's the part where you really need to take the most time and make sure all of that is is good and goes well. Uh, because that then every, you know, the success of the procedure all kind of stems from that setup in my mind. I, I don't know. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, you're exactly right. So, For office-based rhinology, the the anesthesia is the whole procedure. And and another good saying is, the longer the anesthetic, the shorter the case. So, in other words, the better you have the patient anesthetized, the smoother things are going to go for you. And the the anesthesia has three needs. And the first need is the patient. The patient's got to be comfortable because the last thing you want is for the patient to walk out and say, wow, that doctor really hurt me because... A patient that's pleased is going to tell five of their friends, but a patient that has a bad experience, they're going to tell 10 or 20 people. And, and so things can, things can go wrong, you know, right out of the gate. If you don't have a good anesthesia plan in place, the other need is for the staff. If the staff senses that the patient's uncomfortable, the staff gets distracted and, and your procedure will not go smoothly. And then it's the anesthesia protocol is important for you too. You know, I mentioned that the, you know, the otolaryngologist is kind of the, the captain of the, of the team here. And, and if you're not comfortable, then everyone else takes their cue from you. And, and that includes the patient. The patients, even with a little sedation, they, they know what's going on. You know, they can see if you're uh, sweaty, you know, you're uncomfortable, if your staff is. So the, the anesthesia has got to be good for everybody. It's got to be good for the patient, good for the staff, and, and good, for the, good for the surgeon. And the next consideration about that is to consider the, the anesthesia before the procedure. So how we handle that is, is we have a debriefing the day before our office procedures are scheduled and we kind of go through the patients and we, we say, you know, we have patient X tomorrow and, and their list of medical problems include some sleep apnea or some, some whatever and their medications are this and. And these are important things to consider before you get in the room with the patient. So part of the anesthesia, I would say, is having some monitoring on hand. You know, if you're going to give any little bit of sedation, you need at least a pulse ox and a uh, a pulse monitor. We have evolved into having a little Welch Allen unit. It's not very large, and it was pretty inexpensive but it will cycle blood pressure pulse. It'll, um, it has a little sort of a plethysmography part, which will capture their respiratory rate. It does a continuous saturation. And the nice thing is at the end, it'll give you a little printout and you can scan that into your chart as a record that you monitored the patient, which is, which is helpful too. So, and then just, you know, most otolaryngologists already have this, no matter what setting they're practicing in, but you need to make sure you got a crash card. You know, if your patient gets too sedated and you use some airway equipment that. The time to find that out that, that you don't have that is not when you're standing there with a the patient who who needs that. So before you do these, you need to um, give some thought to your, your rescue equipment, make sure that's set. And that, that's all part of your anesthesia protocol. And so once we've run through that debriefing, we we set a plan for the next day. And so our, our anesthesia includes three phases. And once again, make sure you know your, your state laws. And, and what we're doing in Tennessee is considered level one anesthesia so it's really a procedure under local with just a little added sedative and we don't require any extra certification from the state or anything like that to provide this but in, in some states you may so so make sure you know your state rules on this but our our pre-meds we call them are our, our oral medications that we give to the patients on the day of the procedure and they're administered about an hour ahead of time we found that's the optimum time to get these medicines in and to have their effect first we give acetaminophen that's 500 milligrams That's your analgesic. We use promethazine. We use 12.5 milligrams. And we like that because it, it gives a little bit of sedation, but promethazine has two really important other side benefits. One, it's a cough suppressant, right? Think, think about your cough syrups, you know, finagrin with codeine, right? And so it, it prevents that, <clears throat> that coughing thing that, that office based patients can get going. And the second thing it does is it's an anti-emetic. It prevents them from getting nauseated. And if you've ever done anything in your office you know that people become vasovagal you know they get the vapors and and the promethazine we find just kind of smooths all that problem out and then the the other sedative that we use and this is it's an anxiolytic it's triazolam um, it's very short-acting benzodiazepine which is important which then because you can control it you know when we first started doing these we used diazepam that's valium it's a long-acting benzo, and, and we found that there was just too much variability. Some people would be falling out of the side of the wheelchair when we rolled them over the procedure room and others would be like nothing happened and, and everywhere in between. And it was just too, too variable. We didn't get a, you know, a reliable effect of that sedative. So we switched after a site visit to using triazolam and, and we're uh, much more satisfied with the anxiolytic effects that, and just a little bit of sedation that that supplied. So that
2: what works the ar- dose matter. thing on that.
1: I'm sorry, the dose of the trizolam that we use is 0. 0.125. And just a little safety tip: We have the patients fill the prescriptions, but bring them to our office, and we administer the medicines. And the reason I bring this up is we've had it happen twice that a patient showed up to our office with trizolam 0.25 milligrams, twice the dose that we prescribed. And so you definitely want to be aware of something like that. So, you know, pharmacists sometimes will, will fill a, if you write for two tablets of 0. 0.125, they'll just give you one tablet of 0. 0.25 if they don't have the dose you prescribed, at least in our state. So, so we always check the medications, make sure they're the right dose. We administer them in the office. We have a nurse and, and either a second nurse or one of our mid levels verify the medicines check the patient's vital signs before we administer any medication and give the medications an hour before the procedure begins.
0: What are Who are the patients that maybe can't, like, are there patients who can't do the this three medication cocktail? Or are there any patients that you worry about, hey, I don't know if I want to do the anxiolytic and the promethazine? Have ever have patients like that or is this protocol pretty standard and for most, you know, 95% of the time it's, this is what it is? Do you have to, we, we, do you, do you have to veer we, off, I guess?
1: Yeah. We have patients that, that either choose not to do it or that we advise against it. And it's usually the ones that are having less done. So if they're just having cryoablation or radio frequency and nothing else, that's one situation or another situation that comes up sometimes is that they, they don't have family or friends or anyone that can drive them to them from the office. So as soon as they get a sedative, they have got to have a driver. And, and so, and you can't, you know. It, it's even a little risky, I would say, to, to rely on a medical taxi to, to take that patient home because the taxi drivers really aren't, aren't qualified to do any sort of assessment if something happens in the car on the way home. But yes, there are times when we don't use that, that oral protocol. We will still give them the acetaminophen, but if they're not having much done or they're uncomfortable with, with a little bit of sedation or they don't have a driver, we'll skip that, that part of the anesthesia protocol.
0: So the other question I had for you, Scott, is what about those patients that are obese or severe OSA, are those better to then just do in the OR or uh, do they also do okay with this protocol in your office or, hey, we may not, we just do the Tylenol and we still get them in the office because even general anesthesia can be complex, you know, riskier for these patients as well.
1: Yeah, these are all important points. So that, that's the reason we do the debriefing the day before is to go over things like this and, and the one for sure that you want to be anticipating what, you know, a problem with is a sleep apnea patient. And so typically what we'll do with those is, you know, let's say they're, they're on some other medicines that concern us. Like a lot of people in Tennessee are on Gabapentin or Lyrica or other Mm -hmm. sedative type medicines. And so what we'll do for that patient is instead of giving them a whole tablet of the 0. 0.125, we might just give them a half. In our crash cart, we do have benzodiazepine reversing agent. So we have the flumazanil and, and I've never had to use it, but I feel comfortable that it's there in case I find myself in a situation where someone's too sedated. I, I can use that medication to reverse that effect. And that is exactly why we don't use narcotics. Our anesthesiology colleagues tell us that, that mishaps with medications more often than not involve narcotics. And there's much more of a safety margin with the benzodiazepines, especially if you're using a short-acting one and a low dose. And that's another reason we like triazolam, those two reasons. I would definitely not recommend using diazepam in a sleep apnea patient. Uh, Because if nothing happens in your office, the the effect of that medication is going to last for hours after you release that patient home. And that, that, that's where things can happen is once they leave your office. So the trizolam is short enough acting that by the time they've had the medication on board an hour before the procedure and and have gotten through their 30 minutes of the procedure and then we observe them for another 20 or 30 minutes afterwards, you, most of the medication effect is is gone by then. So it's, it's that short acting. So the um, trizolam... You know, it gives you a a good margin of safety. Another one that a lot of people use is lorazepam, that's Ativan. It's a little bit longer acting. And so if you're going to use that one, I would definitely recommend you go at the lower end, 0.25 or 0.5 of that one. It would not use one milligram. That's, I think that's too much and it'll last too long, but you bring up a good point. So, yeah.
2: So you've, they've come, the patients come in and you've, you've given the medicines and now take us through the, I assume there's some, you know, topical anesthesia preparation. What what do you
1: do for that? Yeah. So the first phase was the oral sedation, which we've covered pretty well. But the second phase is the topical anesthesia. And and the first step of that is just what you normally use for any scope procedure in your office. And, um, you know, we had to change that a little bit too for the pandemic. It used to be spray. Now it's all about cotton. And so our our topical gets applied uh, by the nurse on some cotton fibers in their nose and in sort of the holding room before we move over to the procedure room. And the topical begins about 15 minutes before the scheduled time. So about 15 minutes before we want to start. So let's let's say our first procedure of the day is going to be 7.30. About 7.15, we're going to go in the, in the pre-procedure room and we're going to apply the, the cotton. And for us, the uh, topical that we use for scopes is it's 1% lidocaine with 1 to 15,000 hepi. And that's a mixture we started with a long time ago and we just sort of stuck with it. It's, it's pretty good for basic endoscopy. That alone would not be enough to, to do any of these office-based rhinology procedures. So the second part of the topical starts when the patient gets in the procedure room. And that's when the physician enters and we'll start placing pledges. And what we use is a one-to-one mixture of 4% lidocaine and one-to-1,000 epinephrine. And that is a potent epinephrine, which is another reason you want to have that monitor handy, that pulse ox, or or that little Welch Allyn unit that I was referring to earlier. So, most are going to tolerate this pretty well because you you've pre-decongested them with your with your regular topical solution. And we actually have the patient bring some Afrin too. So right when they go into the procedure room, we'll squirt their nose with Afrin, and that's another way to get some decongestion, which which prevents the systemic absorption of the epinephrine. So once we have the Once we have the second round of the topical in the nose, we'll wait about 10 minutes and then we'll start the third phase of the anesthesia, which is the injections. Our injection is 1% lidocaine with one to 200,000 epinephrine. And we like that because it gives good vasoconstriction and it gives excellent anesthesia, but it doesn't give palpitations. So the, the epi is just a little bit more dilute in that injection. And so the patient doesn't feel as if their heart's racing. And and that is, if, you know, if I've seen one thing that patients complain of, depending on your your uh, local, it's the palpitations. So they they definitely feel the one to one hundred thousand. I've never seen pulse rates get you know above ninety or a hundred once I inject, but the patients definitely notice it. So when we changed to one to two hundred thousand, uh, we all that went away.
0: So I guess, and you're debriefing the day before, along with the OSA and the sedation, your cardiac patients, so like hypertension coronary artery disease may play a role in any changes of your topical injections or whether or not you decide to keep them in the office versus go to the OR, would you say?
1: Yes, that's that's true. So those with the cardiac history, we're going to stay on the low end of injection. I, I find that I'd, typically for what I'm doing, I, I don't need more than than anywhere from four to six mLs of injection total. That's including both sides. And that that usually keeps you below a threshold where any cardiac events might happen. But if if you've got a, a patient with a pretty serious cardiac history and then they're a risk for general you know general anesthesia uh, and you want to do this in your office, I might recommend you have that monitor unit because at least the Welch Allen thing has a, you at least have one lead of, you know, of ECG tracing on that. So, and the the sedative protocol we talked about is not so much that the patients are completely out. So, if they're feeling something, they can tell you.
0: The one thing, because okay. I do a lot of kids, so the volume matters in terms of, you know, weight-based dosing. I like using the 1cc TV syringes, um, not the needle, but the syringes. And it helps yeah. me, you know, inject nice and slow, and I can get where I need to go, just at that one, you know, root of the turbinate, middle turbinate. And it's a nice, slow, diffuse, without me feeling like I, I'm putting in two, you know, one and a half, two cc's at one site. Do you use certain size syringes? Or is it just a 10 or a 5? Does that matter to you at all?
1: It does matter. You, you hit two really important points. One is low volume. You don't need a lot. But the second really important point that you said is slow diffusion. So if you infiltrate slowly, you don't need as much volume. If you infiltrate slowly, you don't get all that sort of back blow onto your scope or that extravasation out into the nasal cavity and into the nasopharynx, which doesn't matter that much in the operating room, but it does matter in the office. You don't want that stuff running down the patient's throat because as soon as it does, their throat gets numb and then they start the, "Uh, uh, uh," or the doctor, I can't swallow thing. And you definitely want to avoid that. So a low volume, slow infiltration is really important. And, and I've, I've sort of evolved to where I, I don't have an office and an OR protocol anymore. I just have a protocol. So I do these the same, no matter which, which side of service I'm in. And the one piece of equipment that's really helped us with this is the reinforced anesthesia needle. And if you're not familiar with this, I just ask your striker rep to bring one by sometime. It's a really great device. It's, and it's low cost. It's, it's a modification of a spinal needle. So, I found two things with a spinal needle, either it was so big and the needle was so sharp that all my local was just running out of the, out of the place I was injecting it and going everywhere I wanted it to, but, but the site I was infiltrating. Or if I used a smaller spinal, it was so floppy, I never could control where it was going in the nose. And then the, re- the RAM, the reinforced anesthesia needle, takes care of both of those issues. So it has a 21-gauge a shell, but it's got a 27-gauge tip. And it's, it's at the end of the needle, it's, it's got about three or four millimeters to allow you to get in that submucosal plane, but, but it won't allow you to go any deeper. And so what this does is it it allows you to do that slow infiltration and it prevents all the extravasation. So you're not getting blowback onto your scope. You're not getting a leak of the anesthetic solution. That's going to run down the nasopharynx and anesthetize the the hypopharynx. And it gets you in the right plane to do that slow, smooth, low volume infiltration that, that you mentioned. So that, that device has really been a game changer for our office procedures and. If you're not using this device, I would really highly recommend you take take a serious look at it.
2: While we're on the topic of equipment, can you talk to us about some other, you know, tools that you have that are you feel like are important to you know, the success of being able to do these in office procedures?
1: Yeah. So I always start the, with the basics and the the first basic for this is good visualization. So you need, you need some good telescopes. And if you can, you need at least 4K resolution. We were lucky our, one of our surgery centers was changing endoscopy equipment and they, they were just going to throw away a 4K monitor. So we were like, Hey, we'll, we'll take that Mm -hmm. off your hands. And so we purchased it from them at a. Fantastic used price, and that that's been our workhorse ever since. We've had that piece of equipment now for about four or five years. So, if you can do something like that, it really puts you in the right path. You know, having good visualization is so important. You got to be able to see what you're doing to to do it well.
0: In terms of scope size, do you find that you do most of these with a four millimeter or a two point seven, since they're awake and you don't want them to feel as much, but it's smaller and so things get blurry faster.
1: So the the scopes we use are more pediatric size. It gives us a little more room to maneuver around in the nose. And nowadays, I think from most scope providers, you can get a, a wide field view. So even if you're using a, a three millimeter telescope or a 2.7, as you mentioned, you can still get a view that's equivalent to a four millimeter. And once you get a four millimeter scope in there, it's surprising. Even with a patient decongested, it really limits your degree of freedom. So if you can use the lower profile scopes, I'd really recommend that. My, my go-to scopes are the zero and the 30, but I do occasionally pull out a 45. If I really need to visualize the maxillary natural ostium really well, i find that 45 to be important for that. Once you have your scopes, the then there's, there's sort of a decision point, a fork in the road, if you will. If you don't have a lot of equipment, you can, you can ask your rep of whatever company you prefer to bring you what you need. And so that's one pathway. You can do what we did, which is start small and then remodel often. And so we, we started with a couple of scopes and a microdebreeder. Those were our first equipment purchases. And then what we would do is, is set aside a little bit of revenue from some procedures, save that up and then purchase the next round of equipment, whatever we needed. So that that's what I call the, the small acquisition model. And then the other thing you can do these days, if you have the capital or you're a large organization, you can just go to a company and say, I need everything and you can get everything from scopes to the balloon devices. You can get a mini fest instrument tray. You can get image guidance if you want that. So those are three different ways you can go. You can borrow it. You can start small and add on, or you can just get the whole package. And so just to summarize, you'll need good endoscopes. You'll need some some sinus instruments. You'll need some small Blakesleys or three-cut forceps. You'll need a bayonet. But if you can get a, an alligator, either an otologic alligator, or we were lucky to find an alligator forcep that's that's uh, about eight centimeters long. And this is really useful for placing those small pledgets far back in the nose. Now, especially if you're going to do anything around the sphenoid or the eustachian tube, you need to be able to get a small cotton pledget back there. And so a longer alligator of some sort really helps you with that. A microdebrider, possibly image guidance. Yeah. I mean, you can get as fancy as having a wireless camera if you want. We don't have that. We just use the wires and, and, and struggle with spaghetti occasionally, but uh, all those things are available. And I'd say that's a, a basic setup of equipment that you would need for these office-based rhinology procedures.
0: In terms of, this is kind of a s- small detail, but in terms of pledget size, when you say the small ones, what size do you tend to, is it?
1: So we use two kinds of pledgets. We use half by threes. Okay. Uh, and so that, those are the ones we place on the first round and there we just put them as far back in the nose as the patient can tolerate to start with. But once we once we start the, the second round of topical after we've injected, we use half by ones or half by twos. So the smallest size you can get. And that's important because you need a small profile to tuck in lateral to the middle turbinate, medial to the middle turbinate. You especially need a small one to tuck into the torus. If you want to do some eustachian tube work, or if you want to get a pledget in the sphenoethmoid recess or around the superior turbinate, you need a small one. And so we find the half by ones or half by twos are, are most useful for that.
2: Do you, do you cut the strings off or do you have the ones with the strings?
1: <laughs> we use the ones with the strings. I don't cut the strings off for two reasons. One, you have a slightly sedated patient and and if that falls down their throat, they may not notice it. The other is sometimes patients will swallow and and the act of swallowing, even if their throat's not anesthetized, will start to pull the cotton down their throat and so to me, you need you need something you need a you need a rescue line there to keep that from happening. so you don't want your cotton pledges becoming a foreign body that you're going to deal with outside your office.
0: Mm-hmm. We had our endoscopic ear surgery talk recently, and uh, and we were just talking about cutting the strings, holding on to it. Anyways,
1: yeah, it's great debate. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I sort of feel like uh, rhinologists fall into one of two camps. You know, they they keep the strings or they cut them off. Okay. But I would recommend that you keep. I
0: them. keep mine off too. Yeah,
1: for those reasons we discussed. So, okay. Yeah.
2: Any anything else as far as set up and av- available equipment? Did we miss anything from that standpoint?
1: So a couple of things. We have two rooms that we've sort of dedicated to this. And, and if you have that capability, I'd recommend it. It's a little harder to to transition back and forth between an exam room and a procedure room. So sometimes you have to, you know, depending on the, the size and footprint of your office. But if you can dedicate a room or two to this, I would recommend that. And then we talked a little bit about staff earlier under anesthesia, but just to touch on that again, you need you need the right staff. You need you need nursing help that, that can tolerate the procedures too. I mean, some nurses don't like, you know, the popping and crackling sounds or the little bit of blood that comes out the nose. And, and so you don't want your assistant, you know, becoming faint during the procedure. So knowing that ahead of time is important. And cross-training. More than one person needs to know how to do this. You don't want to find yourself on that procedure day and your nursing help is out because they got childcare issues or they're ill, or they've had a death in the family or the, all the things that come up in our lives. And you don't want to be there by yourself. So you need to make sure that you've got a couple of people cross-trained who can fill in backfill, if you will, in case your, your primary assistant's not available. So. I would put that, you know, under under extra needs for the procedure. So just some important things to, to, to uh, consider before you do this.
0: I wanted to get into some specific uh, procedures, but before we get there, do you have a separate recovery room for your patients? So we talked about how, you know, after the procedure is done, you need time for the ear scrubber and turnover. Is the patient in the same room during this time? Is I go through roll?
1: That's a great question. So what we do with that is we just use a regular exam room for a kind of a pre-procedure room. and then And then we put the patient in a wheelchair from the procedure room and roll them to just another exam room that we just use sort of as a post-procedure or, you know, if you want to call it recovery room. And we usually like to put that somewhere close to the nursing station so that the nursing staff can, can go in frequently and check vital signs and just do the routine uh, follow-ups. Usually my routine is once I'm done with the procedure, I will go straight to the electronic record and get a few key details in there. And while I'm doing that, the nurses are transferring the patient by wheelchair from the procedure room to the, to the post-procedure room, and, and then they'll run and grab the family. And by the time they've done that, I'll go back in to the post-procedure room and meet with the family and give them all the go-home instructions and let them know how things went and anything special that they need to know, you know, for the aftercare, when can they use their CPAP, when they can go back to work, if there were some medicines we stopped, some anticoagulants or whatever, specific instructions about that. And, and then another couple of, of checks by the nursing staff after that usually runs our, you know, 30 to 40 minutes of post-procedure observation. And once that lamb is pretty much worn off, that's when we'll, we'll roll them down to their car in a wheelchair. So now once we've sedated them, we don't really let them, let them up. So they might be wobbly. They, you know, they could be vasovagal or just enough sedated from the medications. You don't want to take the chance on them falling and, and injuring themselves in your office. So. Once they get those medications, we pretty much transport them wherever they're going to go.
0: And then um, one other question in terms of like the the process. Do you basically then just have like one half day or one day where you schedule these procedures? Do you ever, if for somebody starting out that maybe doesn't have the volume yet, do you ever have, or maybe you have colleagues, do you ever have clinic at the same time that you're doing these procedures?
1: So I don't, I, I either dedicate a day to doing clinic or I dedicate a day to doing procedures. Now I will say, here's what I recommend for starting out or what I do sometimes if my schedule's not full. So if you're just starting out, what I would recommend is do a procedure the first thing in the morning and then leave a little bit of time after the procedure. And then if you want to see a couple of patients after that, I think that's fine. I would not fill every single slot on either side of that procedure when you're starting out. Don't recommend that at all. And And even though I'm, you know, a little bit seasoned in this, I still, on days that I don't have a full schedule, I will only scatter in just a few patients. Uh, So I, I I either like to allocate my time to doing procedures and focusing just on that or to clinic. And I I don't like to mix the two. I I just find It's for me, it's just a little too disruptive to switch gears
2: back and forth.
1: Uh, So it just helps me focus more on, on what I'm doing. If I just have, you know, one, one, one thing that I'm doing that day, either procedures or clinic.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. That's I kind of tend to be to be like that as well. So you you're a trainer. So you ho- you host physicians to you know to do these peer-to-peer training sessions. What what is a that event like? So if you know, can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, so the the event starts when a a field rep identifies a physician client who's interested in in doing these procedures and and wants to learn more. And so all this happens behind the scenes away from me, but there's a, a sort of a matching process for what, what level that, that person who wants to come for the visit is at. And then they match with a trainer across the country. And so a lot of the folks that come to see us are ones that are just starting out or have done a little of it and just start and want to get a little more comfortable or see what the next level is. And so our, our practice is, is geared nicely to that level. We're not a sinus center. I mean, all of us that do these are just comprehensive otolaryngologists. We do everything else. We do tubes and tonsils and sleep apnea and tons of allergy. And I do want to circle back to the allergy point uh, later. But so once the, once the client is matched with a a program, um, then a date is set for the visit. And we usually like to do these on a Friday to minimize the disruption to that, that visiting surgeon's schedule and family activities and this sort of thing. So. It's a, it's kind of a three or four step event. So they will usually come in Thursday evening. So that way they can work most of Thursday and not miss time that day. And, and Thursday evening is is what we call hospitality. And so we usually like to get together just over an informal dinner. And and usually the discussions are, where are you? What, what is it you're trying to get out of this visit? Here's what's on our agenda tomorrow. How can we tailor this to, to what you want to get out of the visit? So we spend a lot of time sorting that out. And then the next step in the visit is the actual um, day of the procedures. And so we've different different uh, COE sites, Center of Excellence sites will do this differently, but the way we handle it is we have set up a little slideshow. So as soon as the the physician comes, they meet in our break room and we have a kind of a video set up in there and a little bit of a slideshow about the equipment, the anesthesia technique, all these different things we've talked about so far, and we run through that. The next thing we'll do is pull up the list of procedures and I'll usually just go through with them the patient's history, what workup we've done, we'll look at the imaging together. All those normal steps that you you would do yourself leading up to a procedure. And then they will come in with us during the during the procedure and they will we have our, our main room that we do this in is is arranged so that that they can stand in one corner and see everything. So we have the room kind of set up around around the opposite corner where all the video monitoring is and and we actually have a, another screen that'll display the the video and if we have image guidance going they can see that easily they can they can get their eyes on the equipment we have the assistant situated in the room so that they can see um, what's happening there and, and some physicians will bring their nurse with them and some will also bring their administrator and there's an experience we provide for them too so the the nurses meet with our nursing staff and run through that and, and while we're doing the procedures with the physician, the administrator will meet with our administrative team and learn about billing and coding and all those things. So, we try to touch on everything, you know, that's needed to set this up. And then there's two more steps after this is done. So, after we're done with our procedure day and our teaching and so forth, we like to have a another sort of hospitality thing. We try to go to launch and, and just debrief. So, what questions do you have? You've seen a lot. You know, does this apply to you? How might you start this? Where do I begin to get this equipment, all that. And, and we leave them with a, a packet that, that answers all these questions. It has our anesthesia protocol. It has the, the equipment master list. We just try to go through everything with them again. And then the, the fourth phase actually happens after the visit. So once the, once the physicians back at their practice, a few weeks later, we try to get them to get back in touch with us with a phone call or email or, or text or whatever to say, Hey, how's it going? What can we do to address your concerns? How can we help you take the next step? And so that's pretty much how we how we handle a, a peer-to-peer visit. And there's a lot of different types of learning and they're all valuable. But I'll tell you what, I learned just as much from these visits as the visiting physicians do. I learned what challenges they have and and how they handle them. And I it's helped me more times than I can count in my practice. And um just peer-to-peer exchange and networking I've found to be so valuable. That's that's my favorite part of this this whole thing. And I, I, you know, I know you guys are academicians and you might take this for granted, but one of the definitions of doctor is teacher. And uh, while I don't teach residents, I do teach my patients every day and I, I do teach my nursing staff, but I was missing one little piece of the puzzle. And that was teaching physicians. And that has really brought my career, you know, to a level I, I never anticipated and it's been uh, extremely satisfying. To be able to impart what I do and and then have physicians see me somewhere down the road and say hey you know we took back what you taught us and we've done this and we've made it better in this way and and um, that's uh, that's a really important part of of this peer-to-peer teaching I think so
2: yeah that's awesome yeah I, I would totally agree that te- teaching is is my you know, passion for sure, and, and it's just one of the most um, rewarding things because I, I think it. You know, you're you're basically what what you're doing is being carried forward, and then and then exponentially kind of you know passing on and down, and that's pretty powerful to think about. So
1: yeah, we stand tall on the shoulders of those that came before us, and and um, we have been lots of places and visited lots of practices, and we, we've modeled ourselves after you know, what we thought was the the best from here and there. And, and, um, and then that's uh, spread out around the country and it's a big family. That's what I tell people, you know, once, once you've been to visit us, you're part of the family, you can always get back in touch and, and tell me what's good. What's bad. What do I need to do better? You know, when someone comes to see me the next time, or what did I do well the last time, that's all an important part of it.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of growth for sure. So, Dr. Fortune, what is a procedure that's a good one to start with for somebody trying to incorporate office-based rhinology in their practice?
1: So, I, I would recommend considering, your you know, your first step is treating those patients with chronic rhinitis. We all have the patient that walks into our office with the the drippy nose that doesn't seem to respond to any medications, and it's socially embarrassing. Their nose runs when they sit down to eat. They've always got the handkerchief. You know the type of I'm talking yeah. about. I'm certain, and and um, you know, there's a little relief you can provide for those folks with nasal sprays. Especially ipratropium seems to be helpful, and and it's actually predictive of who might respond to treatment for chronic rhinitis. So if the patient has a positive response to the ipratropium and doesn't want to use a medication for a long period of time, that they're probably a good candidate for treatment of of chronic rhinitis and. You basically got two options there and they're the, they're the opposites of one another. You can, you can cool it down or you can heat it up. So you can, you can offer cryotherapy or you can offer radiofrequency ablation. And both of those have been shown in, in studies to, to be safe and effective. And um, the, the percentage responses, you know, in those studies are typically above 70%. So a good rule of thumb for procedures for chronic rhinitis is about four out of five are going to improve. And improve for some means they don't need the nasal spray, but it's important to set a good expectation for patients. Some will still need the nasal spray, even though they don't need it as much. And that that's a nice, subtle distinction to make for your patient. But let's, let's just assume that you've done the workup, you've provided that prescription, they've come back and they've said, yeah, I improved a little bit on the Ipertropion, but I don't, I don't want to use this medication for the next months, years, my life, whatever then you might offer to them a procedure to try to minimize that. And so chronic rhinitis is a good starting point because there's not a lot of equipment needs and the procedures are fairly straightforward. And I find that, that the, either the cryotherapy wand or the radio frequency device is low enough in profile that you can often maneuver some septal deviations and things like this and not have to address that also. So that's an important point, but for for the cryotherapy or radio frequency patient, I will offer them the option of having the pre-medications or not. So we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. This is a patient where a lot of them want to drive themselves to and from the procedure because there's essentially no recovery time. I mean, they could have it and go back to work the same day if they wanted. So this, this is one situation where I often find myself not giving them the, the oral sedation medications. And it's, it's quite possible to get them comfortable with the anesthetic protocols we described earlier for this. So let's assume that they want to do that and and they're going to do it without the pre-meds. The process is still the same. They're set up on a procedure day. And so they will come and they'll still get their acetaminophen an hour ahead of time. And then 15 minutes ahead, they'll get their first round of pledgets shortly after that they'll get their Afrin spray then they're moved over to the procedure room and then they get their first set of the, the long pledgets that we discussed with the lidocaine and and uh, Epi mixture and I've altered my technique just a little bit and I I want to tell you why so what I what I used to do at first was to take the pledgets out inject the left side put the pledgets back take the pledgets out of the right inject the right side and put the pledgets back And not so much for, for chronic rhinitis, but for some of the other procedures, what I found in doing that was by the time I got back to the right side to finish things up, the anesthetic was wearing off. So now what I will do is take the pledgets out of the left, inject, put the pledgets back, wait about three, four or five minutes, and you got to figure out what you're going to do with those few minutes. Because when you're not doing anything, they're the longest three, four or five minutes of your life. And then I will take the pledgets out and do the procedure on the left side. And then repack that and then go and inject the right and do the procedure on the right. And, and doing that, I've found that i I've avoid that, you know, anesthetic wearing off problem. The, a key point for, especially for chronic rhinitis treatment is a good sphenopalatine injection. And that's a, especially important for the cryotherapy because the one pitfall in, in this procedure is the ice cream headache. And, and I've had a couple of them and they, they can be pretty bad. And and so you really want to try to head that off. So a good way to prevent that ice cream headache is to make sure you get a good sphenopalatine injection. We talked about that reinforced anesthesia needle. That's a key tool to provide a good sphenopalatine block. And so the one little modification for cryotherapy is I will I will provide that block before I do the procedure and then as soon as I get that cryo wand out of the nose I'll apply a little bit more of the local in that area and that that seems to blunt the ice cream headache quite nicely if you do get one uh, just have some hot liquids on hand that's another good way to manage an ice cream headache is to give the patient some hot coffee or some hot tea and so, Basically, the reason it happens is you're, you're applying, you know, cold treatment to a branch of the trigeminal nerve. And, and we all know from anatomy how big the trigeminal nerve is, and we know how much substance P and other toxic things it can release and, and start the whole headache process. You've seen this with your migraineurs and, and so forth, and, and just knowing that, and and respecting that and and providing a good block before and after will will keep you out of trouble with that ice cream headache but that, that's one pitfall to to know about and to anticipate and to try to avoid in cryotherapy the the ice cream headaches not such an issue with radiofrequency the trigeminal nerve is not so sensitive to heat that it seems to create that same headache issue but once you've chosen your your technique you can uh, maneuver the the device back into the sphenopalatine area and for either one, the, the cryotherapy balloon, which is you can get from Stryker or the Rheineir wand, which you can get from Aaron Medical, the device goes back right over the sphenopalatine area, and then you apply the treatment. And with the cryo wand, your, your treatment time is 30 seconds. And then you need to let the wand sit where it is for 45 seconds, because if you pull it straight out, you're going to pull out a large piece of mucosa with it. the cryo wand cools off to such a temperature that the the balloon device freezes to the tissue for a moment. And so to, to allow that to release, you need to give about 45 seconds and you'll know when you can take the wand out because all of the frost will be gone from both the balloon and from the mucosa. And then what I'll do at that point is just give the balloon a, a slight little wiggle, and if they're if it's not stuck at all at the mucosa, you can take it out. the cr- The radiofrequency device treatment time is 12 seconds, and once the once the wand has gone through a full cycle of treatment and cooling, um, which lasts that 12 seconds, you can take it straight off of the mucosa. So that's another little uh, slight subtle difference between the the two procedures. A final difference is the the radiofrequency wand can be used to to touch the posterior aspect of the inferior turbinate a little bit. So it, it does have one advantage over the cryo wand in that you can treat some nasal congestion at the same time by using it to apply a little bit of that radio frequency energy to the mulberry tip or the posterior part of the inferior turbinate and the patients get nice relief of congestion from that. I would say with the cryo wand, a lot of my patients come back telling me they can breathe better. And so I, I have a suspicion that the, the cryotherapy ablates a little bit of tissue around the middle turbinate. And if you go back to your um, nasal physiology, which we all want to forget, but uh, about a third of the airflow goes through that middle meatus right over the middle turbinate. And so if there's a little less tissue there, the patient sense a little, little easier airflow. And so even my cryotherapy patients often will come back and say, you know, I've, I breathe a little better since you did this for me. So that's a benefit that uh, you can look for. I don't tell my my um, cryotherapy patients too much about that on the on the front end, in case they don't get that that result. But but I do often see it, and and if they bring it up afterwards, I'll I'll tell them some about it. So those are some differences with those two procedures. That's a nice starting point. I would say that all that together, once the surgeon gets in the room, is about a fifteen or twenty minute process, and and most of that time again is the anesthesia. So the actual treatment times for those, as I mentioned, are pretty short. Um, So the active working part is, is pretty limited, but you want to be patient with that anesthetic, make sure your patient's comfortable, do all those things that we talked about to avoid the ice cream headache. And what I will do from there is to have them both. I'll, I'll have them just use a lot of saline. If I did quite a bit of radio frequency, sometimes they will crust, whereas the cryo patients don't crust very much. So for radio frequency, I'll have them use a little bit of Mupiracin ointment in their nose, especially at nighttime, maybe one other time a day. And for both, I'll see them back in about five weeks. And the reason for that is the, the physiology of the procedure is that the sphenopalatine nerves are injured by either cold or heat. And it takes time for, for the uh, degeneration of that nerve to go back to the first order, first order ganglion and that process takes about about four weeks on average so if you wait about five weeks to see them back you're going to have a pretty good idea of what result you're going to wind up with and what we will do is have them come back we'll have them tell us their history we'll examine their nose and we will do that symptom score because sometimes the patients don't realize you know what difference there has been in their their pre-op and post-op symptoms and that symptom score is a nice way to say well you know you You had this before the procedure and now, you know, now you're down to this level. That's a that's a good objective measure of your response to the treatment.
2: Right. Lots and lots of good advice. Thank you so much. Any any parting words um, for our listeners?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. Um, One has to do with the all we've talked about today and the other has to do with my academy roles. So the first is you're, you're never too old or too far in practice to learn these techniques we've talked about today. You can be fresh out of training, and I've trained those at the academy meeting. We will typically be in the, one of the equipment provider booths to uh, train people hands-on. But I, I've had physicians who were within a year or two of retirement and wanted to learn this come visit also. So I mentioned to you that your training doesn't end the day you walk out of a residency, it continues throughout your practice. And, and even at the end of your career, you can still learn about these things. And, and even if you're not going to do them, you'll know who to refer them to. So uh, that's an important thing to know. The second is we're at an important time for the specialty. And your academy is, is doing all sorts of things for you with education and advocacy. And one of my committees' is responsibilities is education for rhinology and allergy. And so we are providing all types of education for every type of learner. And if you haven't taken a look at it, I would recommend that you take a look at the FLEX. For those who really like the home study course, there's still a, a set of articles to read and review and answer questions on to get your uh, CME credit. But for other types of learners, there are podcasts, there are surgical videos, there are patient of the week questions. It's a really rich model of education, and there's there's something there for everyone. And I've just submitted my first round of questions for that, so you can you can look for those sometime in the future. So rely on the academy for your ongoing education. And the second is we've had a, an election and a turnover in administration and lots of, uh, there's lots of moving parts in healthcare right now. And so I'm on the legislative affairs committee and we do monitor what's, what's happening with healthcare legislation as it relates to otolaryngology. And our specialty is in need of some financial support. So I would encourage you to take a look at the ENT PAC and to try to support that. What that allows us to do is to identify legislators that are favorable to issues that face otolaryngology as a specialty and for us to engage with them and it's just the the nature of the beast, you know, in 2021 that you have to have some funds to be able to sit at the table with these folks and the ENT pack needs your support for that. So to maintain the, the good position our specialty is in now and to position us for the future, I really would appreciate you supporting the ENT pack. To, to keep us headed in the right direction.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fortune. Thank you for taking the time. I learned a ton today. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this one um, and for their feedback. Thank you for our listeners for tuning in. Um, you can find us at underscore backtable, ENT. Our podcasts are on SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple. What else am oh, I missing? Now too. Oh, on Audible, thanks. <laughs> What else am I missing, Ash or Doctor Fortune?
2: (laughs) Scott, if for listeners who want to reach out and connect with you, um, what um, social media platforms are you on? I know we've connected via Twitter. Is that your main? um,
1: Yeah, you can you can find me easily on Twitter. I I do respond there. You feel free to send me a direct message. Uh, So my Twitter handle is at Doctor Scott Fortune, and and on the uh, on that Twitter account, I do highlight you know some of what we do with office based rhinology and. We've got a couple of hashtags if you want to follow that along. One is minimally invasive rhinology, and the second is office-based rhinology. There's a, a practice website. It's not quite as robust as the Twitter feed, but it does have some good information. And our our practice website is www.myallergyent.com. That's myallergyent.com. But I'll also give you my email and, uh, and feel free to reach out to me. I've, I've done the same for some of your previous guests, and I've had some great conversations with some of the recent folks you've had on the podcast. And my email is SFENTallergy at yahoo.com. So Scott Fortune, ENT, allergy at yahoo.com.
2: Awesome. Thank you. So yeah, reach out to Scott, let him know how this podcast landed for you. Reach out to Gopi and I and and let us know what you thought and what other material you might want to hear. Thank you for stopping by the podcast today. Please subscribe, uh, rate, and and share us with your friends. Until next time, it's a wrap. (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks.